the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Welcome to another episode of Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals, so go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Maybe a little investment in gold or silver would be a great holiday gift for a friend, colleague, child this holiday season. Coming up on this episode, it's a best of, and I picked two of my favorite interviews Oh, they've all been my favorites, but these two are special to me because these people have so much courage. They're so gutsy and they're so smart. And I love amplifying voices like this. Not that they need me to amplify them, but I just, I, I'm just in love with both of these individuals. The first is Zuby. The second is Dave Rubin. Now I mentioned to a friend of mine that I was going to interview Zuby and they said, that sounds like the name of a, of a, you know, a mannequin head inside one of those games that passes you fortunes or something at, at the carnival. And I said, no, this guy is Nigerian born and, uh, uh, just an amazing story. I, I don't know how to, there's no way to really classify Zuby. There's no single description. He's an extremely well-educated rapper who also has this common sense look at the world that is, has garnered him about a million followers on social media. And so many people still don't know who he is. I just, I just want you to hear from him because he encourages me to be a little more brave. So without further ado, here is Zuby. It's interesting to me. You're, you are a musician professionally. And yet your worldview is so broad and what you admit made you go viral as, as things do these days was a tweet of Mm -hmm. you doing a deadlift. What inspired this tweet? Walk me through what happened there. Yeah, sure. So for several years, so that tweet was February, 2019, but since around 2016 or 2017 in particular, I started to notice this whole issue going on with female sports where you are having biological males identifying as women and proceeding to beat women in their own sports. This was happening. I saw it happen in MMA with the Fallon Fox situation. Um, It happened in athletics, weightlifting, rugby, various sports. I started just seeing this happening. And then on the day that I tweeted that, I was on Twitter uh, and I'd seen two stories in the same day of two US high schools, in fact. Um, a couple incidents in American high schools where males had 
beaten females in their sports. And I think, in fact, taken the records. And out of curiosity, I just thought, man, like, well, first of all, I think this, this whole thing is absurd. It's stupid. Mm-hmm. And it's just wrong. Um, and I was just like, man, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a strong guy. I've been lifting, I've been lifting weights for a long time. Out of curiosity, I was like, man, I wonder what the British women's deadlift record is. And I looked it up and in my weight class, I think it was 200 and I want to say it was about 210 kilos. Okay. Um, which is a little bit under 500 pounds. And I was like, man, like my max is 275, which is over 600 pounds. So I just had a video on my phone of me doing a 230 kilo deadlift, like very easily. And I just tweeted it. And I said something along the lines of, I keep hearing about how biological men have no strength advantage over women in 2019. So watch me destroy the British women's deadlift record without trying. P.S. I identified as a woman whilst lifting the weight. Don't be a bigot. So I just posted that. I had 18,000 followers at the time that I posted it. Um, as of today, I've got 855,000 on Twitter. <laughs> so I just put that out there thinking, you know, I think this is funny. Um, I think it's also making a point. Other people will probably think it's funny. And it just went crazy. It went crazy. The, view, the video hit 10,000 views, and I think of the first 10 minutes. And then by the time I went to bed that night, it was over 300,000. I woke up in the morning, half a million hit a million the following day. It and just what are you thinking as you're going. watching this thing explode? Well, this was my first time going viral like this. Now I've had multiple posts go viral at this yeah. point, but at this time I just was, I, I didn't know what was going on because it was getting, it went viral globally. It wasn't just, oh, okay, within the UK, a lot of people, it, it was international. Yeah. And there were people all over, USA, Canada, Brazil, Australia, retweeting people were commenting in different languages and sharing it and sharing it. <laughs> I was just like, this is, this is insane. And it went on for days. It went on for days and days and days. And then actually about two weeks after I posted it, I woke up one morning and I had all these messages and DMs and people getting really hyped saying, man, like Joe Rogan just mentioned you on his podcast, like Joe Rogan, Joe. And I was like, what? And then I, I listened to his recent, ep- I listened to his episode with, um, it was one with Brian Callen and they did a whole like, two, three minute segment talking about this tweet and talking about me. And that's when Joe started following me. He gave me a big shout out on his podcast. Um, and then I went on Twitter and he'd actually DM'd me just saying like, man, that was like one of the funniest things I, I, I've ever seen. And then we started chatting in the DMs. And a few months later down the line, I ended up on his podcast as yeah. well as the Ben Shapiro show, Dave Rubin's show, Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens, like all these people. Yeah. Um, I was suddenly on the radar, all these people. And what's so interesting about this is that it was an introduction to who I am. So as, as I say, this is three and a half years ago now. But now in 2020, all these years later, the momentum has, has stayed and people have stuck around because it wasn't just like, oh, okay, this is a guy who once posted one funny right, thing right? that introduced a lot of people to my music and my podcast and my writing and my general thoughts and worldview and personality and all that. And so a lot of people came for the deadlift, but they stuck around because of everything else. Uh, it's what they always say. You can get, anyone can get hired, but if they stay employed, that's a because they're they're good at their job, so it, yeah. it's the same idea. You you can get a follower, but they only stay if it's worth following. And you are, uh, you can find him at Zuby Music Z U B Y. When we come back, I want to find out if there was any negative repercussion from that tweet. I can't imagine it was a hundred percent positive reaction. We'll find out what the naysayers said to Zuby after this. Oh boy. 
since November of last year, the stock market, it's just plummeted. And the good news is there's something that's been on the rise, and that's gold. Gold has been on the rise. Gas prices are a joke. The stock market's all over the map. Inflation is at a near 40-year high. We've got a war going on. The markets don't like instability. But here's some more good news. You have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection because gold provides a hedge against inflation and it protects against a weakening dollar. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company I trust when investing in gold and silver. You need an investment that's going to protect your wealth and your retirement. So what have you got to lose by calling Legacy Precious Metals and asking how they can help you? Call them today. You want to be proactive before it's uh, too late. I mean, I hate to remind you about 2008, but those who invested in gold saw huge gains and others lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all your options for investing in gold and silver. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals, 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903, or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, so the viral tweet with you breaking the 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 uh, deadlift record, the women's deadlift record in the UK. There had to be some people who hated it. Were there? They had nothing to say. It was a complete checkmate maneuver. They had nothing to say. So what would you what would be the a, criticism? Oh, you bigot! You nothing. How can they call me a bigot? I identified as a woman. <laughs> it was a checkmate. Oh, complete. It was, it was a complete, it was a complete checkmate. There's two options. You can deny that I'm a woman, in which case by your own logic, you're a transphobe, right? Yeah. Or you can accept that I'm a woman and which case I'm the British women's deadlift record holder. So pick one. <laughs> that was it. That simple. Uh, you know, that, that's what made it so brilliant. And, and you describe it as checkmate and that's, that's so that's spot on. It just, it just was. So this, as you said, was an introduction of you and your worldview, which is, it's very interesting to me. So I've had a bunch of thoughts and my tendency, because when I was growing up, we debated a lot in my household, we'd have these mm. dinnertime debates. So my tendency is always to think, how is that person going to counter me? How is that person going to counter me? So I'm just wondering if you get any of the typical BS about, well, maybe you're black. But clearly, you're so well-educated. You're not a real black man. 
Do you hear that? <laughs> um, not framed exactly that way. Not okay. framed exactly that way. Um, but of course, there are people who are obsessed with trying to put people into these categories with yeah. their assumptions and biases and trying to uh, control what people are allowed to think or what people yes. are allowed to say based on their immutable characteristics. It doesn't work on me. It's never worked on me. Um, I reject this stuff outright. I've rejected it since my childhood days. So when people come at me with that kind of stuff, they always, always end up looking really, really stupid. It backfires <laughs> on them every single time to the point where I think most people have realized not to come at me like that because yeah. they know they're just going to get smoked and very politely. They'll get very politely smoked. But yes. um, yeah, it, it it doesn't it doesn't work on me. I, I don't play those games. I'm very much an individual. Um, I can't kind of be like cowed or bleed to go along with something based on, oh, well, you're black, so you must think this or you're this, so you must. I just, I don't even entertain it. And I call it out for what it is. I call it out for what it is. I think a lot of people are afraid to. I'm not. If that's how someone approaches me rather than actually dealing with what I'm saying or the point that I'm trying to make, then um, I'll just tell them about themselves. And so- <laughs> I've, uh, you know, Tell them about themselves. That's yeah, I mean, oh, look, oh, I, 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 I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I really, uh, it's something that's actually bothered me since my teenage years, right? Like that whole idea that if you are X, you must think this or you must, must vote that way, right? Or you must, you, right? I don't, I, I don't subscribe to any of that in any How did you any, learn not direction. to, though? Because in a world where kids are being taught mm -hmm. to learn that, you mm -hmm. clearly avoided that. That uh, I, I can call it brainwash. I can call it yeah. I don't know what we call it. But how did you how did you manage? Well, I think first of all, the the brainwashing elements were not as powerful when I was growing up. Okay, I don't think there was as much of an agenda in the '90s or in the early 2000s okay. to promote this kind of mindset upon people. And then also, um, you know, I was raised very well. I have fantastic parents, and I'm from a great family that raised me with good values and taught me to think for myself. And I also just have a personality type that has never cared so much to just because a lot of people are doing something doesn't mean that I'm going to do it. And I've always been this way. I mean, my parents didn't have to worry so much about me when I was a teenager. I mean, because I, I was in boarding school. I was thousands of miles away from them. Yeah. Um, and there were all kinds of people getting involved in all kinds of stuff. And I'm someone who's always influenced people around me more than I'm influenced by people around me. Mm -hmm. And it's been like that from a very young age. So just because, I mean, I, I, and there's some real simple examples. You know, there's a lot of things like I, I do or I don't do, which are somewhat against the grain. I mean, like I don't swear, I don't cuss, I don't use profanity, right? With all the hip hop music that I listen to and being a rapper myself and all the stuff I'm around, I don't cuss because I don't Is want to. Is that intentional? It's not even that intentional. It's just like, I just don't. I just don't. Like, it's not something that's hard for me to, it's not like I'm censoring myself. It's not like I want to and I'm preventing it. It's right. just like, no, I don't do that. And I don't have a reason to do it. I have reasons not to, but I don't have a good reason to. So I won't do it. I don't care if everyone else is doing it. I right. can be in a room with, you know, 99, 99, you know, a room of a hundred people and 99 are cussing up the room. I'm not going to join in just because I do. Right. Okay. Um, I've never smoked a cigarette. I don't drink alcohol. Like just because other people do it, you know, some people, Again, it's not a big deal to me. It's a, it may, it's more of a big deal to other people, right? Like yeah. I might meet someone who's who's not that familiar with me, and people are drinking whatever. I'm like, no, I'm I'm good. I don't drink alcohol. And for some people, it's like, oh my gosh, like that's 
Like, why? Like, you know, they're, they're so intrigued by it. And, uh, you know, depending on how I'm feeling, I might, I might give a different answer, but I'm just like, why, why is that so, why is that so weird to you? You know like, what I, I don't think need it to is? Ex- I, I think it's admirable. And I think I, I do. This is from a, I'm a wine drinker. I love yeah. wine and I, I have to have my evening glass of wine. It's just, it's just part of my routine. Mm-hmm. And there are days I wish that I didn't. But and so I wonder about myself. Like, am I? Does this mean I can't quit the wine? What is this? I, it's just a relaxation thing for me. And it's mm. and it's probably my husband does not drink, and I admire him so much for it. And yeah. you think with that kind of influence, I would I would just stop. But I love a glass of wine in the evening. So I yeah, think and, people really and, admire it, Zuby. I think it's something that people go, <laughs> "Whoa! How how? Not just why do you do it? How do you do it? Yeah, but you just you know, never like, tried it." No, I mean, I've, I've tried alcohol before. Okay. I mean, it's not like, it's not like a, a religious conviction or something. Right. I'm just not interested. It's just like, I just make up my own mind on things, right? So over the past two and a half years, right? Like, I mean, I'm not going to wear a mask just because other people are wearing them. Yeah. Right? If someone's trying to get me to wear a mask, I'm like, why? Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, because you, you're, you're selfish if you don't. How? Explain. <laughs> well, you're going to make everybody else sick. I don't have COVID. <laughs> Right. Like this is the thing. It's just, how do you know you don't have, you might get it in a second. Yeah. But this is the thing, right? Like most people, right. And I'm not trying to say this to, you know, like be, be mean to anyone, but, but most people are very, very um, susceptible to peer pressure and herd mentality. I I think that's actually the human default. And for whatever reason, I've always not been that guy. I I, like, it's really hard to get me to do something that I do not want to do everything. I do stuff because I want to do it. If I don't want to do it and I don't have a good reason to do it, I'll just be like, no, like I'm not, I'm not doing that. And I think maybe going to boarding school as well gave me a particular disdain for rules that don't make sense because in my school we had rules. (laughs) What was the worst one? Okay. In the first school, the first boarding school I went to, we had to have the first and the last five minutes of every meal in silence. Huh? Yeah, that I I, I can't know why? imagine why. Do you know why? Why? Because that's the rule. Oh, got it. Okay. Because we said so. Okay. That was it. So that it's was just it. A, so a, a maybe a that spot where they could influence where they could influence authority. Exactly. So okay. I think that maybe that on top of my existing personality just has given me this like you know I have no problem following rules that make sense. I'm, I'm general. I'm not someone who's like naturally rebellious. It's just like stuff just has to make sense to me. If it doesn't make sense, then I'm just like, well, just because everyone else is doing it, that's not a good reason for me to do it, especially if there's negative downsides for myself individually, or I believe for people as a whole. So yeah, I think that kind of applies with everything I do. I think it's, it's how I've been able to take the, a very unique career path in what I've done. I mean, I left my I worked in the corporate world for three years. And then when I was- What were you doing? 20, I was a management consultant for three years. Okay. okay. Um, and then when I was 24, 23, 24, um, I left and yeah, I became a full-time musician and started pursuing all that. And you know, I t- I've taken a completely different path to you know all my friends from school and university and everything. I mean, most people went into- you know, whether investment banking or engineering or this or that. And I was just like, man, I want to be a rapper. Um, <laughs> you know, and people are like, man, how can you be a rapper? You, you have an Oxford degree. Like, you know, why? I was like, so like, since what, why, why can't like, people have all these limitations they put on themselves. 
all these limitations and they let society, they let everything influence and, and they end up with these very limited mindsets where they think they can only do X thing or they can only do one thing, right? Some people even now are like, man, like, what are you? Like, are you, are you a rapper or an author or a podcaster or a public speaker? I'm like, I'm all of them. Yeah. Why do I only have to do one thing? Why can't, why can't I, I have multiple talents. <laughs> I have multiple abilities. I have multiple interests. So I'm going to do all of them. If I want to yeah. get into something else, cool. I will add it to the, I'll add it to the list. I don't yeah. allow those type of limitations to be put on me. And honestly, I think that far too many people do to yeah, their do. own detriment. So do you see what I mean about Zuby? I'm to their own detriment. I just, I, I admire the guy and he helps me stand on my feet a little bit more strongly, knowing that we share the same values. I also share the same values as Dave Rubin. He is just a, a funny, funny, smart, successful writer, comedian, performer, just an incredible guy. He happens to be gay, married with twins, and I don't give a damn, but I mention that because it is a, it's a part of his story. It's part of who he is. And, uh, you get to see him unvarnished just who he is in this interview that we did with Dave Rubin. Don't burn this country is the name of Dave Rubin's book. All right. So you, again, did you start in stand up comedy? Oh, yeah. The week after I got out of college in May of 98. I was like, oh, I guess I have to get a job. I'm in the real world. I was like, I'll be a comedian. And I went to uh, basically an open mic, or I think I had, we called it a bringer show back then. You had to bring, if you would bring two or three friends to the show oh, yeah. to buy two drinks, they'd throw you on stage. And I kind of crushed it my first night out there, which a lot of times comedians do because you don't even know how to screw up yet. Right. So right. it's like just that initial thing of going out there, not even really knowing what you're doing. And then I did stand up in New York with a lot of the successes and failures of it for 12 years or so. I did the road yeah. for a while. I started a couple comedy clubs with some other comedians where we split all the profits six nights a week, standing out in Times Square barking. I'm sure you've walked by those people two hours a night, rain nor sleet nor snow would stop us. Uh, one night we're in a massive blizzard in New York City, massive blizzard. They had shut down the city. And I'm standing in Times Square. I'm wearing two pairs of pants so that I could do stand-up. You know, I got a jacket, gloves, the whole thing, hat. I'm standing in Times Square. There's nobody out there because it's a massive blizzard. But I'm just, you know, we're just trying to get four people to show up so that we can tell a couple jokes. We don't make any money on it, nothing. And my phone rings and it's my roommate. And he says, Dave, uh, I'm watching WPIX Channel 11 in New York right now. He said they're doing a broadcast from Times Square where they're talking about how nobody should be outside and the city shut down. And I see you standing behind the guy handing out tickets to the comedy show. So that is the life. That is the glorious lifestyle of a comedian. If comedy, if stand up comedy is done in an empty Times Square, is does anyone hear it? It's like if a tree falls, you know, no one's there to hear no, the comedy. Did I really think happen? I know no the answer heard? is no to that okay. one. Okay. Okay. That's commitment though. Man, uh, you know, yeah. I, I always hear about the life of stand-up comedians and it's just it's it it's drives people like me to think, yeah, I'd never do that. But I, I commend you and the fact that you made a living. Um, and so then what kind of transpired in your life to turn you toward these books? Well, it was a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that happened was, so I started stand-up, as I said, in 98. And after 10 or so years, 
I realized that nobody was moving out because what happened was, you know, back in the old days with stand-up, it was like, if you were a stand-up, say in eighties or nineties, basically you got five minutes, you perfected your five minutes. And if you were, if you were halfway decent, you didn't even have to be great. You could get to the tonight show and you'd sit down with Johnny Carson. And if Johnny liked you, you got a sitcom. I mean, that's how it went for Jerry Seinfeld and Louis Anderson and Ellen DeGeneres and virtually every big name comic of the last 40 years. That's how it happened for them. You can almost go through everybody. Howie Mandel, the entire long list, Tim Allen, everybody, right? So, but what happened was by by the early 2000s, mid 2000s, first off, television really changed because the idea was you would do stand up and then you'd get a sitcom and then you're, you were made. Ray yeah. Romano, I mean, everybody, right? But sitcoms had stopped. So there weren't many of them anymore. What was taking over was reality TV. So all of these comedians that had spent their lives trying to get the sitcom, get, you know, perfect the standup to get the sitcom. They weren't getting the sitcom. So they were all stuck at the clubs and the club is the gym. Really? You want to get out of the gym so that you can play in the pros. But all of the guys that were ahead of me, there was this generation of comedians that were ahead of me. None of them were going anywhere. So the clubs became really, it was a glut at the clubs. And I, for, for whatever reason, I saw that very early on. And I started thinking, this doesn't make sense. Why am I trying to perfect five minutes to get on The Tonight Show, which, by the way, then Johnny Carson had left. It was already Leno. Leno, although I've come to like Leno more in my later years because of how apolitical he was, he never really helped anybody. There's no stories, as far as I know publicly. Johnny Carson, it was well-known, like, he's going to get you going. Right. There were very, I don't know of any stories, literally none, that Leno, like, brought someone onto the show. And then I'm, I'm sure he did things behind the scenes or whatever. But I just realized the machine didn't seem like it was working anymore. So I was like, I got to figure out another way to do this. Then fortunately, that's when YouTube was kicking in. Podcasts were just starting. And I was very early in on all of that. I honestly had no freaking clue what I was doing. I had a podcast. I didn't even know what a podcast was, honestly. (laughs) People would come up to me on the street. I'm not kidding. People would come up to me. Hey, I'm listening to your podcast right now. I would be like, how do you download it? I don't even know. (laughs) But I knew how to sit in a room with the microphone and have somebody else do the technical part, which actually is pretty much what I'm doing now. So You and me both. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So then, so this is all happening, and then there's there's there is sort of a political side to you, right? I mean, oh, clearly, yeah. what was it? A moment? Was it an event? Was it a, a, a what was it that that turned you toward writing your first book? Yeah, well, I was always sort of political. My family was always political. Nobody was involved in politics directly, but you know. My mom was in PTA. My dad was always talking politics. My family was always arguing about politics. I come from a New York, Long Island home. Like, it was like, that's what people did. It was just like arguing about everything all the time. And then dinner, you know, dessert was served and everybody was good to go. That's the way it used to be in America, that people could do that without, you know, everybody storming out of the house or swearing to never talk to anybody again or canceling people, et cetera. Um, So I was always sort of political in that sense. I was a poli-sci major in college. And then, uh, then politics, I was always interested in the media side too. When I was doing standup, I was making jokes about, about CNN 20 years ago. You know, all the stuff that everyone's <laughs> making fun of now, when I look at Ahead my own your comedy, time, man. Yeah. Like, I mean, I was making fun of Wolf Blitzer and all those guys way back when <laughs> and how that they, I, you know, I used to do something about how, uh, they make up all their sources, you know, a, a, an unnamed source on Capitol Hill told me, and it's like, who are you talking about? The janitor? Like, what, yeah. what are we really talking about here? That they made up everything. So it was all sort of obvious to me in a weird way early. Uh, And then, you know, in these last 10 years, politics 
just kind of infected everything. everything. So then, because I was already doing the online thing and I was already interested in politics, once politics infected everything, I guess that's where my career really kind of took off because then what I was doing sort of went mainstream, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You were sort of ahead of the curve, I, I would say, because, you know, some people are just jumping in this now as though, wow, the political arena is the place to be and to be heard. And if you can be funny about it or you can be angry about it or you can hit just the right note that somebody wants to hear, you know, you can make it. Um, but is don't burn this country surviving and thriving in our woke dystopia. I mean, it's in a way it does feel like dis it, dystopian. It does to me. I I'll just share with you really quick that a couple hours ago, I was a guest on a podcast that was an awful experience. Mm -hmm. I, right out of the gate, it was awful. And uh, I thought to myself, where the hell am I? I mean, we're not having a conversation here at all. I'm just being accused of stuff. I, I don't even know what they're talking about. And they Did are you know what you were walking into? No, not at all. Not at all. So it was a bit of an ambush too. And I, and I thought to, and all the while the, the macro question in my head was how the hell did we get here? Like I, one of the guys on the podcast I've known for many years, we, we covered sports at the same time, yada, yada. And I was like, how did we get here? Were these, I, I've gotten on a zoom with these guys and they've already decided they hate me and yep. what I stand for. And they don't even really know me. Yep. And so I do feel like we're burning the country. And so when you're saying don't burn it, how do we put out the fire, man? It's, it's, it's happening. Well, that's, that's really what the book's about, how to put out the fire, because you're right. We shouldn't burn it. And there's been something really, really great here for 250 years that is the greatest political experiment in human history. That's what mm -hmm. the United States is, that anyone from any corner of the earth could come here and build a better life for themselves. And basically it worked for everybody. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt, Michelle, your life is better than your grandparents' life. Mm -hmm. My parents, uh, my life is way better than my grandparents' life. Every single person watching this. Sometimes I'll go and when I do a public talk somewhere, I'll poll people. I'll say, does anyone in here have it worse than their grandparents? And only one time, I've done this dozens and dozens of times in front of thousands of people. Only one time someone raised their hand and he kind of did it as a joke, but he's like, actually, my grand, my great grandparents were in the oil biz in California in the 1930s. And, you know, we, the family lost the fortune. And it's like, okay, I found one guy and that yeah. actually is true. And the family went bust. Okay, so be it. But the point is, it doesn't matter where you came from, whether, whether you're Hispanic or Irish, or Jewish, or from the West Indies, or anywhere else, you came here with pretty much nothing. You know, very few people came here with anything. And they fought and worked hard. And, you know, for me, on both sides, it was my great-grandparents. But both of my grandfathers had to fight in World War II. I mean, I get to talk for a living. That's what my grandfathers had to do. So I think a little appreciation for some of that is good. And then really, the, the main antidote that I lay out in the book is take some responsibility for your life. You know, it does not matter if you think people are mean and it does not matter if people misgender you or use the wrong pronouns or any of those things. If you take offense to that, that's on you. You got a chance in this world to do something good. How about you go out there and do it and see what happens? And, uh, you know, I toured with Jordan Peterson for a year and a half and he would often talk about, you know, that star in the distance. Uh, when you wish upon a star, he would talk about that from Pinocchio. And it's like, you know, when you see that star in the distance, if whatever that is to you, 
if you go to that, if you go to that thing, you may not get exactly that thing, but you will get somewhere approximately close to it and it will probably be pretty good. And I think that that's pretty much what I've done. Amen to that. And I, I believe in it. I believe in agency. I believe in, I really believe in if you are going to be offended by someone, you're complicit in it because it's your choice to be offended by stuff. It's, yes, it's, you it know, is on you. It, it is on you, but people do not want to hear that. And they are so quick to just spit venom back at you when you suggest that. Uh, you know, we were talking about the don't say gay bill, which nowhere in that bill does it say don't say gay. And I said, I don't think it's homophobic to decide that kids between the ages of eight and 12 or whatever it is, uh, it doesn't need to be in the curriculum, this stuff, you know, let's save that till later, but that's offensive. Well, I I don't know what to tell you. It It is homophobic. No, it's not. It's just asking for this not to be in the curriculum. Why is it important to teach young kids this? And and they they are so firm in their belief that I don't know that any book, any lecture, any cool breeze is going to help these people change their minds. And I'm not sure I should worry about those people, but I well, do. You, you can't. You can't to some degree, right? Because you know, if you keep going to the pot and you keep burning yourself on the pot, at some point you got to stop going there. And these people are operating at a temperature that it makes it very difficult to reach out to them. You can try to calmly explain to them, well, actually, the the word gay is not in the bill. This is about K through third graders. This is also really about transparency because they don't what the main purpose of the bill is that you wouldn't want a teacher, a male or female, straight or gay teacher talking to any child of any gender about sexuality privately and then hiding it from the parents. We all know that's obvious. Yeah. Anyone with their head on even remotely straight knows that's true, knows right. that's true. And this but is coming from is, a gay man, ladies and gentlemen. Because no, because, because think about it. I have a seven-year-old niece who lives here in Miami. I went to her birthday party a couple weeks ago. We were making slime. You know about the slime that the kids are doing? Yeah, you know oh, about yeah. The slime? They yeah. love the slime. So I'm in a room with all of these kids, right, and my beautiful niece. Everyone's making slime. The idea that there would be a state educator or anyone else that would talk to her about sex or gender or gender identity. I can't, as her uncle, I cannot even imagine even remotely referencing anything related to sex or gender to her. It would be, it would be insane. She knows there's a difference between boys and girls. She knows that. But if I, but so the idea that a state educator would think that they have the right to not only talk about that stuff, but do it privately and hide that information. So this has nothing to do with gay. I mean, that's the irony. And as you mm-hmm. probably know, I, I just finished up my book tour. I mean, I did my last stop in Orlando with Ron DeSantis in front of a thousand people. The guy freaking congratulated me on having kids. Uh, he took a picture with me and my husband. Couldn't be nicer. This yeah. has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. It's it's amazing to me how distorted it gets, how angry people are, and that that the, the feelings, the passion, the anger, and by the way, the the people I was talking to didn't have kids, which I think unless you, until and unless you know children, have nieces, nephews of that age, like you talked about your niece, and certainly it started for me with my niece and nephews, it, it's it, it's hard to imagine, you know, what this all means, what, how, it, it, just look at kids for God's sakes, look at them, they're little, they're innocent, why does this need to be in their curriculum? It doesn't. So if we can just wait until fourth grade, I think... I think that should be okay. Yeah. I mean, and we can have an honest discussion of when that should be. I mean, I remember 
I'm 45, so I remember when I was in seventh grade, that's when we had health. Yeah. And I remember, I literally remember the teacher coming in and took a banana and a condom and we all were <laughs> cracking up. We thought it was the funniest thing ever, right? Like, well, I don't know what this woman's doing with the banana, but, but, <laughs> but we can have an honest discussion of, is that okay for seventh grade? Should parents be able to opt their kids out? Is that right. too early? Is it too late? Like there is an honest discussion about health and sexuality that, and what public, the role of public education actually is. But meanwhile, they've got freaking drag queen hour at public schools. And it's like, uh, do you guys learn math? Do you learn math? And I'm pretty sure they don't because they think two plus two is five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The percentage of kids who are not reading at grade level is embarrassingly low. And we're supposed to be this country that prizes education. It's it's frustrating to me. But you know what's not frustrating? Don't burn this country. And you, <laughs> Dave Rubin. I mean, seriously, it's a breath of fresh air. I love it when people can have a sense of humor about all of this stuff, because as the people at Whole Foods say to you, it does keep you sane. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you hopeful that there is still sort of this universe of people out there that wants to be able to laugh at all this at the end of the day and just go home and be with their families and have hope and be happy and pursue that star that whatever that star is. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because that's sort of how I end my show these days. I'm always trying to give people something at the end. And I, I joked the other day, it's like, I'm starting to feel like Jerry Springer at the end. <laughs> Remember Jerry Springer when he had that show, it was like chaos for an hour. You know, yeah. you banged my husband and you know, people fight, <laughs> throwing chairs, beating the crap out of each other. And then at the end, he would get up there and he'd be like, you know, be good to each other, everybody. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, aren't you the circus guy who just had right. the fat woman cracking the other guy over the head with the chair? And, the, you know, and it's like, I'm starting to feel like it's a little bit of what I'm doing now. Like I'm dealing with all of this crazy nonsense, but at the end of the day, it's like, if you can hopefully find, you know, somebody that you're happy with that, you know, you can have dinner with and, and maybe have kids or walk the dog with and find something on Netflix that you like, pretty good. That's pretty good. A great way to end. Dave, thanks so much. Good luck with the book. I don't think you're going to need luck, but it was great talking to you. I hope we can do it again. We absolutely will. I'll get you on my show and I hope to see you with uh, that racist baby sometime soon. Yeah, I think we'll we'll join at the racist baby office again <laughs> in the near future. It sounds great. Well, there you have it. Two of my favorites, Zuby and Dave Rubin. And I hope you can see in those bits of the conversations why they are my favorites. Folks, thanks for tuning into Sideline Sanity. Be brave and do good. Happy to talk once again with Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. You know, I think it still is confusing to people, uh, some people, uh, as to why a precious metals investment would be a worthwhile one, particularly at this time when they're thinking, I'm doing all I can to put gas in the car. Why is now a particularly good time? And we'll go from there to how small of an investment is worthwhile for someone? You know, great question. And I think the the importance of why really comes into the fact that we have to save for ourselves, whether it's a little here, a little there, whether it's making it a plan and putting out so much paycheck, whether it's making sure we fund our retirement account, we have to realize we are responsible for ourselves in the long run. <laughs> you mean that no one else is going to ride up and save us, you know, on some white steed? It ain't going to happen. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. You know, that, and anyone who's promising to do that is getting ready to take advantage of you in some form or fashion. Yeah. 
And so, so if, if I'm an investor, a potential investor, and I'm looking at legacy precious metals and I'm saying to myself, yeah, I, I, this sounds smart. I don't have a lot to spend. What would you tell that person? I would say, do what you can. If you never start, you never get there. So the most important step you can take is saying, I'm going to take care of myself and my family. I'm going to make it a plan. I'm going to take action. I'm going to start in the way that's comfortable for me. That's the important thing. The first step is always the hardest. But once you take that first step, the second step is easier. And then you're moving. And then once you're in motion, it's hard to stop you. So that first step, most important step. I always tell people they can call and talk to an IRA expert or, or check out the, the guide that they can download for free, the investor's guide. What, what is the number one question that you get from people who are first-time investors? The biggest question I get, is this right for me? That is the question. And that comes from everyone. So, so everyone's asking the same, is this right for me? And yet we're all so unique. And, and yet it, it is a sound investment for just about any portfolio, isn't it? It is. We, even though we're all unique, that uniqueness is going to tailor the way we begin the investment. Okay. But we're all in the same situation. That's the one thing I think we seem to forget in today's society. Whether you agree with somebody or not, we're in this together. America is in this transition that we're in right now. We're dealing with the same issues. Some people like them, some don't, but we're all in it together, right? So the need is the same. How we prepare and how we invest is what changes from person to person, but we all have that same need. It's a great point. And again, I encourage people to, to, to just make the call, pick up the phone. That step is always the hardest. I'm not sure why that is in any kind of effort that you make in life, whether it's weight loss or exercise or investing some way to better your life. It always seems like that first hurdle is, is the challenge. Uh, but when they call, who, who are they going to talk to? Who, what, what's going to be on the other end of the line for them? Great question. You're, you're going to speak with one of our customer representatives and their job is not to sell you metals, right? We have a much different approach. We're going to answer all your questions. We're going to show you what options you have. And on the rare occasion, this isn't right for you. We're going to say this probably isn't right for you. Um, we have a gold company here, but you know, I, I say it all the time. What we actually deal in is customer service. We want each and every individual that calls to get the answers they need to be able to make the decision that's right for them. And we want to do that in a way that's not pushy, that's not salesy. And that's what makes my team so special. We care about each and every caller. And we're going to show you what options you have. And then you get to make an informed decision. So don't be afraid of the phone call. It's the best thing you can do. And this is why I am so honored and I feel privileged to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. They're the ones that I'm going to deal with. And I encourage you to pick up the phone, give them a call, even easier. Go check out their, their guide. It's a free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. But as you said, Charles, pick up the phone. You're going to talk to someone who can answer your specific questions and get Get the ball rolling. Get get started. Do something that is a long-term play for your family's benefit. Charles, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always great to be here. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.